Well, good morning, everyone. You guys are not very lively. Let's try that again. Good morning, everyone. Ah, oh, thank you. Much better. I feel much better. My name is Aaron. I'm one of the pastors here. I am glad that you guys are here. Um, we are in our last week of our series called Starting Point. So if you're new here today, I want you to know you've missed out on a little bit up to this point, but you can go back and you can check it out. You can listen to it online, either at our website or on our podcast, and have the opportunity to catch up. But I'll give you a little bit of an intro as to what we've been talking about, okay? We've been wrestling with the question, is there an adult starting point for faith? Is there a place that as you reach adulthood and you kind of evaluate life and you've learned a few things and you've grown up, is there a place for a grown-up faith as well? Maybe it's different than what you were handed, whether you went to mass or you went to synagogue or you didn't go to church at all, or maybe your family just went on Christmas and Easter, whatever it was, is there a place for a grown-up faith? And over the last several weeks, we've been talking about some of the biggest questions that revolve around faith. We've, we've talked about a number of things. Let me catch you up real quick, okay? We've talked about the question, who is Jesus? I mean, that's one of the most important questions to wrestle with when it comes to faith. We talked about, are we mistakers or are we sinners? You know, a mistake is something you make on a math test. It's something that you accidentally do when you're filling out your, your, your tax forms. It's something you can erase. But the reality is, some of us, myself included, uh, maybe you, uh, we make mistakes on purpose. And sometimes we make the same mistakes over and over again. So are we mistakers or are we sinners? We've talked about how do we gain God's approval? We've talked about the role of rules. The Bible is filled with rules. What's the deal, deal with all of these rules? And then in week five, we, we unpacked a question, what, if anything, can wash away my sin. Over the last two weeks, we've talked about grace and faith. And today, we're going to talk about something to kind of cap it all off. Today, we're going to talk about an event, something that actually occurred, okay? And if you're going to unpack faith for yourself, if you're going to think about whether or not faith can be real in your life, or whether or not you can have an adult starting point for faith, you are going to need to know how this event occurred and why it actually occurred. Now, when Jesus was alive, Matthew records kind of the beginning of things that led up to the event, okay? Matthew records a time when Jesus took his followers, the, you know, the 12 disciples, and there were some others there with him. He, he took them to a place called Caesarea Philippi. Now, if you look on a map to, to, of, of northern Israel, you'll see you know, Caesarea Philippi is all the way up here towards the north. This would be the border with modern-day Lebanon. Caesarea Philippi was a place that was previously known as Bnaeus or Panaeus. And it was a very, very important spot. Here's why. It was the spot, in fact, it was the center of all modern idolatry in the time of Jesus. 
It had been like that for a long time. It was called Bnei's originally by the Philistines. If you've ever read in the Old Testament about the Philistines, there were a group of people who, who worshipped a fertility god named Baal. And so they, they founded this place and they built a great temple to go and worship the god Baal in this place called Bnei's. Later it became known as Panaeus by the Greeks because the Greeks built a place of worship there to worship the god Pan, an outdoor god, a god of the sheep and the goats. And for some reason, they, they decided right in that area to build a temple and worship that god there. Fast forward a little bit, and we find out that the area is known as Caesarea Philippi because Herod the Great, when his friend Caesar Augustus died in 44 BC when he was assassinated. Herod decided to build a great place to, to give honor to his friend. And the Roman people declared that when Caesar died, that, that he ascended into the heavens to be a great God. And so the Romans started worshiping Caesar Augustus. They declared him the son of a God. And they started worshiping Caesar Augustus as a God. And so Herod built a great temple there. After Herod died, Herod's son, his name was Philip, decided to expand upon his father's idea. And he built this place. Well, today you can go and you can see parts of it. This is what part of the, the remains look like today. But in, in, in Jesus' day, let me show you what it would have looked like. This is an idea of what the area would have looked like. It's a very Roman architecture. And even in the back, you can see the grotto or the place of worship of Pan. You can see a place of worship here to the right that was dedicated to Caesar himself. And Jesus, for some reason, decided to take his followers to the heart of idolatry in Israel that day. Why would he do that? Why would he do that? Today, when you, when you go to Caesarea Philippi, you can still see the remains of all the worship that would take place. You can go to this wall here and you can see all of these, these places that were carved out for there to be idols, things that people would go and, and worship in hopes then maybe God would bless their crops and take care of them as a family or provide them a child or whatever it was that they were looking for at that time. Jesus took his followers into the very heart of enemy territory and then he asked an interesting question. He said, who do the people say that I am? Now, Jesus wasn't insecure it wasn't as if Jesus needed some sort of like, you know, encouragement. Oh, you're the best. You're the greatest. Yeah, go Jesus. No, it's not that. Jesus simply was asking, hey, what do people say about me? And his followers responded. They said, well, some of them believe that, that, that you are like a reincarnation of John the Baptist or that spirit or Elijah. Or some of them, you know, said you are, you are the prophet of the Old Testament. And then Jesus flips the script, and he said this, who do you say that I am? Standing in the heart of enemy territory, Jesus said to his disciples, who do you think that I am? 
You can imagine, I'm, I'm sure a lot of people were, were like, oh, I don't want to be the first one to speak, don't want to get it wrong, you know? But then Peter spoke up and he said, you are the Messiah, the son of the living God. You, you're the promised one, you're the anointed one, you're the one who's come to save, to pick up and carry away all of our sins. You are the actual son of God. We're in the place where they say, like we worship Caesar Augustus, the son of a God. You are actually the son of God. And Jesus' response to Peter is interesting. I mean, if ever there were a time to rebuke somebody and say, nope, you got it wrong, <laughs> you would think that that is when Jesus would do it if it wasn't true. He's in enemy territory. All the people there are worshiping all different kinds of gods. And Peter openly declares, you are the Son of God. You are the Messiah. And I want you to see how Jesus responded because Jesus' response gives us insight into the event that would begin to change everything, okay? He responds by saying this in Matthew chapter 16 and verse 18. He says, now I say to you that you are Peter. Remember, Peter is the one who, who made the declaration. You are Peter, or Petros, which means little rock. And upon this rock, what rock? The rock of his of his declaration, the, the, the idea that Jesus is the Son of God, the Messiah, the one who picks up and takes away the sins of the whole world. Upon this rock, I will build my what? Church. Hmm. Now that's interesting. I will build my church. And the interesting thing is that the word that's translated here for church is honestly a terrible translation. The word that's translated church here is actually the Greek word ekklesia. Ekklesia. The Greek word ekklesia does not mean building or anything like that. Today we associate church with a building or a location. The Greek word ekklesia is, is not even a religious word. It's not a word that has anything to do with religion or, or, or anything like that. In fact, it's a word that was used every day in every context. It's a word that means gathering or people. Jesus is simply saying, upon this rock, the declaration of who I am, I'm going to establish my gathering, my people. There'll be a Jesus gathering, a, a Jesus people. And over the years, unfortunately, what happened, as, as the New Testament was translated into other languages, the the word ecclesia gradually morphed into this word that we now use in the English language called church. But in one of the translations that caused it to, to really stick, um, it, it, the, the German word kirk was used instead of gathering. Now, if any of you speak German, I'm sure I botched that, so you can send me emails and tell me. But the reality is that at one point, we started using this word kirk, and the word kirk simply means the house 
of the Lord. The word kirk means a location, a place. And here's the thing. When Jesus started all of it, when he took them into the heart of, of, of enemy territory, and he, he kicked off this big statement that I will build my, my gathering, my people, he did not predict a place. He predicted a people. When Jesus started this all off, he didn't predict a place. He didn't predict ornate buildings. He didn't predict buildings like this. He didn't predict any of that. He predicted a people who would be solely focused on one idea. And then, shortly after this event, a few short weeks later, Jesus was arrested. He was placed in Roman custody. He was tried. And he was crucified. Later that day, he was buried, placed in the tomb. And when those same followers who were with him in Caesarea Philippi, when they saw Jesus dead, if we could have gone to them and asked them, hey, what do you think? Peter, you just made this declaration a few short weeks ago. Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of the living God. Do you still think that? Peter would have said, no, absolutely not. We got it wrong. Because when Jesus died, the people closest to him believed he would stay dead. They ran. They hid. Hey, Peter. Hey, John. You guys were there. Um, do you still think that there's going to be a Jesus assembly or a Jesus gathering or a Jesus people? Is that still going to be there? The answer would have been no. Not at all. Because they thought he was dead and he would stay dead. But something changed it all. We talked about it last week. The thing that changed it all was the fact of Jesus' resurrection. And so, shortly after his resurrection, Jesus gathered all of the, the Jesus gathering, the, the Jesus people, and brought them together and had a conversation with them about what was about to happen and what they were supposed to do. He said to them, Here's my instructions. Let me show it to you. In Matthew chapter 28, it's recorded for us what Jesus said right before he ascended from, from earth and went, went to heaven after his resurrection. We're told, Jesus came and told his disciples, I've been given all authority in heaven and on earth. Now, let's just pause for a minute, okay? Boy, this is either an incredibly arrogant statement or it's true. Can you imagine saying, all authority, I'm completely in charge. If there's any question as to who's in charge, it's me. Now, here's, the, here's the, the thing. The only reason I give it credence is because Jesus rose from the dead. He rose from the dead. And when he stands in front of his people, he says, if there's any question as to who's in charge or what's supposed to happen, I'm in charge. Okay? All authority in heaven and earth. It's been given to me. And then he goes on and he says, so here's what you're to do. Therefore, go and make disciples of the nations. The idea of making disciples is learners. We're to help people learn and grow along with following Jesus, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And then he says this, teach these new disciples to obey all the commands that I have given you and be sure of this, I am with you always, even until the end 
of the age. So what is he saying? He's saying, you're to be this Jesus gathering, and I have something for you to do. So from the very beginning, before there was ever something that we now call church, Jesus said, I will build my ecclesia, my gathering, my Jesus people, and they have something to do. They're supposed to move. As you are going, make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, and teach them to command everything that I have taught you. And oh, by the way, I won't leave you alone. I will be with you. Now, today, we have beautiful, ornate buildings. We have incredible locations. People get on airplanes and travel to Europe to see buildings that are hundreds of years old that today we call what? Church. But from the very beginning, there was something different. See, the church was meant to be something else. Here's what it is. The church, from the very beginning, was a growing gathering of men and women who believed that Jesus was the Son of God. It, it wasn't a location. It wasn't a building. It wasn't a place. It was a people who said, I believe that Jesus is the Son of God. That's who He is, and I will follow Him. That's how it all started. And you know what happened? It grew. I mean, very quickly. Like, shortly after Jesus ascended to heaven, Peter stood in the temple courts, and he started telling people about Jesus. Now, if you were here last week and you, 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 you heard kind of what we said, he said, hey, uh, you killed Jesus, okay? God raised him. We've seen him. Say you're sorry. And people did. In fact, in one day, 3,000 people put their faith in Jesus and were baptized right then and there. Not long ago, we had, a, we had uh, seven baptisms, I think, in one day. Can you imagine 3,000? It's like, and you get a baptism, and you get a baptism. And you, you get the picture, right? Like, I mean, it's amazing. And it was growing. It took off. So the gospel, and, and the church started taking the gospel to different places. They started in Jerusalem, and then they went to Judea. You can read about this in the book of Acts. Then they went from Judea to Samaria, and eventually it started going to northern Africa because, you know, Philip uh, met a guy, an Ethiopian official, out in the middle of the desert and started telling him about Jesus. I mean, it's crazy. And, and before they knew it, they had a movement on their hands, but very, very quickly they got stalled out. The movement stopped moving, and the gathering stopped growing because they started focusing on themselves. They started focusing inward. And God was so serious. God was so serious about recognizing that this ecclesia, this, this Jesus gathering, this Jesus people, He was so serious about them understanding that this was not just about them. That this was not just about them being focused on them or being focused on the inside or buildings or places or locations. This was about a movement. He decided to shake things up. 
And in Acts chapter 9, we find what he did to shake things up. You see, there was a guy, his name was Saul. We've talked about him throughout this series. And today, I want you to see his story. Saul was uttering threats with every breath, and he was eager to kill the Lord's followers. Not exactly the kind of guy you want on your team. Here he is, imprisoning Christians. He was involved in the stoning death of Stephen. Stood there, oversaw it, approved it, and he was like, yep, this is right. This guy should die. He wanted to stamp out the Jesus gathering. So he went to the high priest, and he asked him for permission to do something. The text tells us in verse 2 that he asked letters be addressed to the synagogues in Damascus, asking for their cooperation in their arrest of any followers of the way. By the way, this is, this is what Christians were called then. There, weren't, there, there wasn't anything that we would know, as, as, you know, there wasn't Christianity, so to speak. They were, they were called followers of the way. More than likely, that's in reference to Jesus' words in John chapter 14, where, where his disciples piped up and, and he had just told them he was going to go away and, and where he was going they knew, know and the way to get there they know. And Thomas, thankfully, you know, one of the slow learners in the back, he, he raised his hand and he's like, hey, I don't know where you're going and I certainly don't know how to get there. And so Jesus said this to him. He said, I am the way the truth, and the life. No one can come to the Father but through me. So where are you going? To the Father. How do we get there? Through Jesus. They were followers of the way. They were followers of Jesus. He requests that he could be he could have permission to go to Damascus and find any Christians. He wanted to bring them both, men and women, back to Jerusalem in chains. So he got those letters, and the text tells us that he headed to Damascus. In verse 3, it says this, As he was approaching Damascus on this mission, a light from heaven suddenly shone down around him. Now, I don't know if we're talking about like body snatchers or, you know, like, what is it, invasion? You know, that's what I kind of feel like, like there's aliens, you know, shining down. But, but somehow, some way, Paul was so shaken up that he fell to the ground. There's a powerful, powerful light all around him. He falls to the ground, and then he heard a voice, not just a voice in his head, because the text tells us that there were other people there and they heard a voice, but they couldn't quite distinguish what was going on because whoever was speaking was speaking directly to Saul. And here's what he said, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Who could that be? Who could that be? Imagine here you are, a bright light shining down on you. You feel like you're in an interrogation room with the police and the temperature is turned up and the light is shining on you. And Hey, why are you persecuting me? I'd be asking, who are you? And that's exactly what Saul did. In fact, in verse 5, it says, who are you? And notice look what he said. He said, Lord, the word is the, the, the word in, in the Greek is the word kurios. It's just the idea of you are bigger than me. He wasn't making some declaration that he knew it was Jesus or God or anything like that. He's just simply saying, I realize you are bigger and more powerful than me. 
I just need to know who you are. Who are you? And the voice replied, I am Jesus, the one that you are persecuting. Here's Saul. He's at a watershed moment. Maybe a moment similar to you if you are considering faith for yourself. What will you believe about Jesus? The voice kept talking and he said this, Now get up and go into the city and you will be told what you must do. He was saying, hey, you're to get up and go into Damascus and we'll talk about what you're to do. So when he gets there, he spends three days there and the text tells us that he was blind. He couldn't see anything. So he picked himself off the ground, he opened his eyes and he was blind. So his companions led him by the hand to Damascus. And eventually, while he was in Damascus... God began to speak to a man named Ananias. He said to Ananias, I want you to do something for me. Let me tell you. In verse 11, this is what he says. He says, go over to Straight Street. I love this. This is awesome. He's like, hey, go over to Front Street. Go over to Glenwood. Go over to Echo. Go over to, you know, go over there. And I want you to find this guy, Judas, his house. When you get there, ask for a man from Tarsus named Saul. Now, I don't know if they had newspapers in that day. I know they didn't have the internet. But word was certainly spreading that Saul was imprisoning Christians. And Saul was a guy from Tarsus. You better believe that Ananias was a little bit scared. But look at what... God says to Ananias, he is praying to me right now. I can't blame Ananias for what he said next. In verse 12, or 13, look at what it says. He says, but Lord, I've heard many people talk about the terrible things this man has done to believers in Jerusalem. Hey, are you trying to get me in trouble? Are you trying to get me killed? Are you trying to get me thrown in jail? What is going on? Ananias was already a believer, a follower of the way, and, and he knew he would be in trouble, that Saul could put him in jail. But God's response shows us how serious God was about his people being a people on the move. In verse 15, he says, But the Lord said, Go, for Saul is my chosen instrument to take my message to the Gentiles and to kings, as well as to the people of Israel. In other words, he's saying, Listen, when I started this Jesus gathering, it was meant to be a movement. It was meant to spread. It was meant to go to all people. Things have stalled out. Now I have chosen Saul, and I am going to use him to keep taking my message to other people, which frankly, I think, teaches us something about us and what God wants to do through people who begin to follow him. It teaches us this, that God designed you on purpose 
for a purpose. Paul doesn't seem like a likely candidate to become a Christian, but God designed him on purpose for a purpose, and I believe he's done the same with you. That when God established this thing, this ecclesia, this Jesus people, this called out group of people, this Jesus gathering, he chose you on purpose for a purpose, and that purpose is to help other people know him. That's what we were designed for. Now you may say, well, what does that have to do with all the way back where we started and Caesarea Philippi and all of that and the, the, the declaration that Jesus made after his resurrection? Let me take you back to Caesarea Philippi for just a minute because, again, I think this is what kicked off the whole event, the whole start of the Jesus gathering. We shared with you earlier Matthew 16 and verse 18, and here's what it says. It says, now I say to you that you are Peter, Petros, which means rock, and upon this rock I will build my church. But that is not the end of what Jesus had to say. Remember, he was in enemy territory, a place of idol worship. And there were other forms of idol worship that actually took place there that I haven't told you about yet. You see, there was a great cave in that area. It was a cave that had a particular name. It had this name because the cave had a, a, a spring in it, a giant hole that went so deep that in that day, no one was able to find the depths of it. Even the, the Jewish rabbis have written about how, they, how many ropes they tied together and how many stones they put in it and how deep down they went and they could never find the bottom of it. It was so deep that people called it the gates to the underworld or the gates of Hades. It was believed that these deep waters were a place that were to be the entrance to the underworld. And Jesus says this. He says, I will build my ecclesia, my Jesus gathering, and the gates of Hades will not prevail against it. Jesus, in the heart of enemy territory, is saying, listen, nothing can stop my Jesus movement nothing. Now, here's the interesting thing. Gates are defensive. Gates are to keep things in and others out. And so often, I think the church, the ecclesia, the, the, the Jesus gathering acts like we're on defense. Like we have to keep things out and watch out for these bad influences and, and, and all of these things. But from the very beginning, Jesus made it plain, the church is not on defense, the church is on offense. We are to storm the gates. We aren't building fortifications. We're not to be all about building places or locations. We are about building lives and seeing people come to know Christ. That's what we're called to. Today, you can go to Caesarea Philippi, and you can see it looks a little bit like this, this great cave. If you pull a picture up, this great cave that today, it looks different than it would have in Jesus' day because about 70 A.D., 68 A.D., there was a great uh, earthquake that took place, and this whole rock face fell down, and, and a bunch inside went into 
the, the, the great cave and filled up this great spring. Isn't it interesting that Jesus said the gates of Hades will not prevail against it? Today, the water, well, the water used to run through here, but now it runs underground and it comes out just about 100 feet from there and it goes and feeds the Jordan River and feeds through the Sea of Galilee. The church is not on defense. It's on offense. And if you're going to consider faith for yourself, if you're going to consider whether or not there's an adult starting point for you, you, you need to know that Jesus started this Jesus gathering 2,000 years ago. It was his resurrection that kicked it all off. It changed everything. Before that, when he died, no one believed that he would come back to life. No one believed there would be a Jesus gathering or a Jesus people or anything like that. No one believed, but his resurrection changed everything, and it started a movement. And even when the movement stalled, Jesus intervened. I wonder... Do you have an adult faith that would allow you to be a part of this Jesus movement? Here's why. When Jesus saved you, he didn't just save you from yourself for yourself. He didn't just save you from your sins for you. He saved you for others. He saved you because there's other people who need to know about him. And as you're considering an adult starting point for faith, I want you to know what you might be a part of. You see, somebody made space for you. Somebody made it possible. There were a group of people who gave up their preferences to go into other parts of the world. If, if the way or Christianity had, be, had remained localized in Israel, you and I would never know about it today. And Jesus has changed everything by causing a group of people to continue to spread around the world. I wonder what your next step is. Is it possible that your next step is to help somebody else know about Christ? Is it possible that your next step is to bring somebody with you? Or is it possible that your next step is to join this movement by adopting an adult starting point of faith, faith in Jesus as the forgiver of your sins and the leader of your life. The movement changed everything, but we cannot stop moving. Let's pray. God, thank you. Thank you that someone else made it possible for me to know your son. Somebody else kept the movement going. Somebody else gave up their preferences so that I could hear about Christ. Somebody else refused to think that, that this Jesus gathering was about a location, was about a place, but they knew it was actually about people and you changing people's lives. God, I pray that we would be a gathering of people that you use to help change other people's lives. Help us do for one what someone else did for us pray in Jesus' name. Amen.